When is a Miami Beach hotel more than just a hotel in Miami Beach? When it's the Betsy Hotel. Located on famed Ocean Drive, the Betsy is one of the preeminent literary and arts hotels in the world. Its writer's room has been a magnet for hundreds of authors. In fact, its very first writer-in-residence was newly minted MacArthur genius Reginald Dwayne Betts. It's known as well for its remarkable galleries focusing on photography, and it mounts some of the most stimulating cultural events here in South Florida. My guest on The Literary Life today is Jonathan Plutzik, who, with his wife Leslie Goldwasser, converted the Betsy Ross Hotel into what is now a jewel in the heart of South Beach's Art Deco district. Jonathan talks about what inspires his and his family's commitment to the arts, the career of his poet father, Chaim Plutzik, and how he, along with his wife, sister, and son, turned a bankrupt hotel into one of the premier destinations with a purpose. Jonathan, welcome to Literary Life. As you know, I've been a fan of the Betsy just about from the beginning, and now it's become a um, basically the cent- the centerpiece of um, of all the the hotels in what's known as the Entertainment District of South Beach. I'd love to hear from you the origin story of how the Betsy uh, came into existence. Uh, thanks, Mitchell, and, and, and thrilled to be here. And um, I'm going to answer that question, but I actually want to share one quick thing with you. Uh, just before we got together online here, I got a little note um, from Planet Word. And I know we're going to talk a bit about Planet Word, perhaps a little bit later, the new museum in Washington, because it turns out today is International Literacy Day. Ah, So uh, we, we have added weight in our conversation today. Yes, we do, we do, we do. <laughs> yeah, so actually uh, it began, uh, at least the early, early part, not with a plan, got a call from friends of ours who were working on something a little bit further uh, up on in the 30s on Collins Avenue and and uh, wanted some help. Um, um, the wife of that couple called my wife and said, uh, can come help us. And I often say they confused financial sophistication, which we presumably had some of with, with real estate sophistication, which we had less of. Um, but my wife turned to me and said, you have some time. Why don't you go down uh, and see if you can help them? Uh, and we ended up getting involved with them for a little while on a property. Now it's across from where the addition is. But while we were here uh, wandering around town a bit, we saw the, the Betsy Ross. Um, at that point, it was in bankruptcy, federal bankruptcy court. Um, but I was taken by the by the architecture, which obviously it's in the middle of the Art Deco district, but it's distinctly not Art Deco. Um, you know, by the way, uh, crafted by one of the godfathers of Art Deco, L. Murray Dixon, but uh, he did it in the very early 1940s, uh, a really patriotic period. And I think in a global sense, you'd call this colonial architecture, by the way, setting aside all the complex politics of colonialism, just focused on the architecture part. But he was actually motivated, I think, by uh, by something else, which was kind of patriotism, kind of Americana. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as Florida Georgian. Again, this was the beginning of World War II, so a period of great patriotism. So he built this, built this very unique structure. And I should say, parenthetically, my wife grew up in Zimbabwe. So over the last nearly 40 years, I've had a lot of exposure to 
properties around the world. Um, and many of the great properties, again, I pause before I say it, are colonial in nature, sort of the remaining vestiges of what you know, England or, or Portugal or Spain planted places in the world uh, when they were making other kinds of colonial mischief, but left these beautiful buildings behind. Wasn't the case here, but that was part of the inspiration. Big windows, beautiful presence, kind of like feeling like the queen of Ocean Drive. So, but we thought there was an opportunity to create a, a sophisticated hotel that would speak in part to those people. Um, some of the other things came as part of that evolution in our thinking, uh, which I think brings us to the table today. Well, let's talk about what brought us to the table. I first met you when you reached out to me and said, you know, uh, that what you wanted to do is have books in all the rooms of the hotel. Where did the literary aspect of the hotel, um, um, what was the genesis of that? Well, the, the real Genesis, Genesis, um, I think, as you know, my father was a poet, uh, passed away when I was uh, seven uh, in 1962. Um, and um, I, I should not complete that sentence without saying that he was married to my mother, who's still with us at 102. And um, again, he passed away when I was very young. And we grew up in a home that not only celebrated him after his passing, um, but also um, you know, my mother kind of has a, a life hierarchy and, uh, you know, think creatives are at the, at the top of the pyramid and at the very tip of the pyramid are poets. Um, and, but she has projected uh, a view, um, by the way, a little bit of a communist. Um, I say that with affection and admiration, you know, with a view that money bad, creativity good. And that I think, you know, was a message that permeated our lives to this day because um, she still talks about that sort of thing every day. Um, short-term memory, not so great at 102, but these uh, fundamental views haven't diminished at all. Uh, so I think it, it began and begins there. That was kind of a lifetime view that the most important things that we should be celebrating are people who are creatives. And obviously in our world, the literary thing was the most important there were a lot of interesting people here that we thought would respond to our interest in not only having a luxury boutique, but a luxury boutique that where you could find books in every room or, or find a library or find other things going on every day. In addition to the beach and good food and the energy and the palm trees. So why don't you, why don't you paint a picture for uh, listeners uh, of what South Beach really is and uh, Ocean Drive particularly and how the Betsy sits within that landscape. Sure. Well, first let me say, and, and I'm going to take a, a chance here because obviously you're a lifer in Miami Beach and, and I am not, but I'll give the very short version that I, I say, you know, one thing striking about Miami Beach is it's been this incredible gathering place for interesting people for a very long time. Um, you know, when you paint that arc of you know, what was happening uh, post-World War II with the Holocaust survivors, large community, obviously the Cuban community, but, you know, in the 60s, uh, yeah, Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, but Muhammad Ali parking himself here um, and getting ready in 1972, both conventions in town um, and lots of artists and creatives in that mix the whole time. The Miami Beach has been a, a magnet for so much in the way of interesting activity beyond simply the beach, if you will, for a tremendously long time. 
Uh, and I find, I find that very, very interesting. But the Miami Beach of today has, you know, many of those original elements, obviously, we have one of the most beautiful beaches in the world, nowhere to run from that. We're parked in front of a beautiful park. We have, you know, one of the architectural treasures of the country in the Art Deco District. And, and lots of the most important developers and hotel operators and restaurateurs, you know, in the kind of modern generation, meaning, you know, in the last 15 years, have had planted themselves here, um, you know, in really important ways. But the other piece of the puzzle, one doesn't think of this necessarily as a place deeply immersed in arts and culture and reading and literature and so forth. But you look at the arc of the last 15 years, again, you planted a very early flag with books and books. So critically, Miami Book Fair, so critically. Um, but, you know, you look at the, the arc of the last 15 years, the construction of Michael Tilson Thomas's incredible uh, New World Symphony building uh, with the support of the Arisons or the Arsh Center that didn't exist 15 years ago at all, or, or the Perez Art Museum or the Frost. Um, you know, Miami Beach Urban Studios also controls the Wolfsonian Museum that's just a few minutes from us here and this Jewish Museum of South Florida and the Bass Museum. These are all things that are 10 minute uh, walk from where we are. In Miami City Ballet. And we have this great legitimate theater in Miami New Drama that the city welcomed not so long ago. Well, so the, you know, the, the initial positioning beyond, you know, we're going to be a luxury hotel. Uh, we're going to have great food and beautiful beds and great design and all that. Um, you know, we sort of asked ourselves the question, you know, what if, what if we really, you know, committed ourselves because it was our interest to uh, being a, a convening place for arts and culture activities. So one of the first things we did was we asked ourselves, what if we set aside a room uh, dedicated to writers and created a residency program? It begs the question. You have to, we have to, you know, talk a little bit about some of the highlights of sure. some of the writers who've been in the room. Sure. I talk about that because every writer that I know has been there just absolutely loves the time that they've spent there. Well, thanks for asking that. I, I will say actually one, uh, the first comment actually back to your question a moment ago, you know, what is Miami Beach? One of the fun things to watch, frankly, is you say the Florida Keys and people say, well, uh, writers, Hemingway, uh, there's, you know, people have an image. You say Miami Beach, that's not the first image that comes to mind. So one of the fun things actually is to watch writers who are less Miami Beach knowledgeable, haven't been here before, not exposed to it before, and watch their view of it, you know, unfold in this wonderful way, you know, the palm trees swaying. By the way, everybody finds their own place to write. I mean, we feel really deeply about letting, leaving them alone. You know, it's, this is not a, it's not a circus. It's, we're inviting writers to come and do what they do, their craft, um, and everyone does it differently. You know, we, we're really committed to diversity, kind of in all ways you can measure diversity, including, you know, celebrity or lack thereof, meaning someone starting out, but as evidence talent by, you know, they got a recommendation from the Iowa Writers Workshop from somebody that we respect, but are not celebrated in any way, and Pulitzer Prize winners and poet laureates at the other end, but they all, because they're all writers, are all thrilled by the, not only the gesture, but the space. And so uh, it has been uh, rewarding, fun, inspiring, whatever the right term is, to, to see them all come and, and benefit by the moment, if you will. 
uh, in, in big and small ways and see them uh, uh, come not knowing what to expect in all cases and not knowing Miami Beach in many cases and come away saying, I need to come back. It's not what I expected. Give us a few names. Our first uh, writer residence was Reginald Dwayne Betts. And um, uh, so you have to roll back 10 years. Now, Dwayne today is very prominent, you know, um, and for those who don't know Dwayne's story, you know, uh, sadly and inspiringly, you know, he was a convicted felon as a teenager right. with some of his buddies and uh, served, I believe, eight years in jail uh, and came out and, um, um, you know, ultimately uh, found writing, ultimately went to Yale Law School, ultimately got admitted by the bar as a convicted felon. And most recently, um, the Mellon Foundation named him to lead an effort uh, under um, uh, Elizabeth Alexander's uh, leadership to um, uh, build libraries and prisons, $5 million grant. And he's gonna chair that effort, obviously given his special understanding. Um, but he's been back several times to, to partner with us around events and to, to write again. Can I share one more? I mean, there are a thousand stories, but one that comes to mind for me, um, we had uh, poet Joy Layton come and stay with us and actually speak. Now I'm sure this is true, Mitchell, given how many things you've hosted at Books and Books, how many great people you've interviewed or have spoken, and you look around the room and you say to yourself, I wish a thousand people were here listening to this because it's just important what's happening. And, and there are 10 or 15 or 30 or in a virtual world, 200, whatever, but it, Joy, uh, the real quick version is Joy um, was born Jay Layton. And uh, Jay uh, was a tenured professor at Yeshiva University Stern College for Women, tenured. That's really important, because and a, and the father of three. And uh, after tenure, I don't have all the timing, but after tenure, recognized who he really was. Frankly, he realized who he was much earlier, but didn't act on it. Uh, and transitioned. Uh, Jay became Joy, um, and uh, a poet. And uh, uh, you know, I was sitting in this room. Uh, we did this in partnership with Keshet, which is an organization that focuses on uh, Jewish uh, LGBTQ uh, young men and women, um, and um, probably reading queer. And uh, but Joyce spoke, and um, uh, I, I, two things that many things stay with me from that conversation. But but one I would say is um, she talked about her poetry, and said, you know the poets really talk about themselves. And until I transitioned, I couldn't speak about myself in public. And my poetry was public. And remember, important to remember, she taught at an Orthodox Jewish institution, which by the way, sent her home when she transitioned. And then realized they had to invite her back. She had tenure and, and they couldn't let her go. Um, and, and the two things that stuck with me were uh, she talked about her students. She says, I have few people take, fewer people taking my classes, but I can tell you how many students view their humanitarian obligation as Orthodox Jews above their confusion about gender choice and so forth. So I've gotten much more support in a wonderful way from so many young people than I might expect. 
And then someone in the crowd said, talk about your relationship with God. And I'm going to say this out loud in the, what is a public setting ultimately, but I, what I stuck with me, she said, you know, for so many years, the only, I'm going to use the word person, the only person I could talk to about what I was feeling was God. And, and, and so I have a profound relationship with my word, not her, but that's the idea with that sense of being, because I couldn't talk to another human being about it. Um, again, that was one of those moments when I wish there were a thousand people in the room about all that arc in her life, how complex it was and how beautiful a person she was, despite which I'm sure was incredible life complexity. Really amazing. Um, those are the little, those are, those are the gems that populate our lives as people who present these kinds of things, which give me, and I'm sure you, that kind of producer high that, you know, that you were able because of the force of bringing people together to have that experience happen. So, so the Betsy is truly, you know, a family endeavor. So tell me a little bit about, you know, the, your wife and Deborah and your son, Zach, what are their involvements and how, how uh, fulfilling is it to be able to work side by side with them? Sure. Um, well, we, when we began this thing, this, this idea we had about, again, luxury hotel, but, but with an interest in commitment to um, the arts broadly defined and writers in particular, as we embarked on that, we actually kind of didn't want to be dilettantes. We actually, you know, wanted to be serious about it. And, um, you know, we're, we're delighted with people who, who just want to, we need people who just want to give money, you know, who corporately sit around the table and say, you know, contributions to this and that, that's hugely important in our world, but we didn't want to do just that, but we wanted to, to partner with people in the community you know, as a serious partner, not, not a superficial one. So uh, I asked my sister, Deborah, who's got a PhD in arts and education and uh, an opera singer by original training, went to Eastman uh, to come and, and, and help us run that so we could be really serious about it. We could be viewed as appropriate partners. So, so Deb signed on for that, you know, quite early on as we conceived of this idea. And she's been, you know, critical in doing that, and has really run the the writers' residency program, start to finish, and 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 many of our partnerships in the community that require, you know, um, a, a lot of effort. And then in in the art world, you know, we we have walls for, I, mean, I use the term real art, but but art that that we selected, that we curated, and um, uh, over the years. Uh, my wife, Leslie Goldwasser, has gotten more and more deeply into that. And over the last five years or so, we've committed ourselves almost exclusively, I would say exclusively, to photography. Uh, we had kind of a mixed medium thing going on, um, but now it's all photography. And um, so our walls, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of photos, nine galleries um, in, in the hotel. Um, uh, I think it's six in rotation and three that are permanent. 
Um, and uh, it's really exciting. And, and we have a reputation now, you know, nationally as a serious place for photography. And so major galleries in New York and elsewhere want to partner with us. And we love discovering new folks. And uh, again, the work rotates. So there's a lot of effort um, uh, to, to do that. And, and, and Leslie leads that really personally, because we have an exhibition coming up of an incredible, I'm going to say undiscovered woman, Zimbabwe photographer. The oh. look forward to showing you her work. It'll go up for our Basel this year and be up for quite a long time. And I do want to tip my hat to a dear friend of all of ours, um, uh, Robert Zuckerman, who was an you know, early partner of ours in hanging his work, um, you know, uh, uh, inspiringly, uh, uh, Robert is undiminished in terms of energy and interest and commentary and thoughtfulness. And sadly, you know, he's struggled with, with uh, um, you know, with neuromuscular disease, which has caused him to be bedridden, but he's no less productive in so many ways. And we have art of his all over the hotel. And Robert does some of the most, you know, some of the most beautiful, you know, humane work of anybody that I know, you know, prior before humans of New York, Robert was doing that sort of thing where he would take a photograph of somebody and tell a story about who they were and how he met them. And it was all about kindness and about, you know, uh, connecting with people. Yeah. And, and I would just add, by the way, again, for those who don't know his work, he started as an able-bodied person taking photos on movie studios yeah. And he took some really prominent people, the Will Smiths and Al Pacinos, et cetera, of the world. And only as he became less ambulatory, that work diminished. Um, but, but you referenced the kindness book, um, which is so moving because it's beautiful photography, but Robert's a beautiful writer too. dad was a really big inspiration. Your father, Chaim Plutzik, was a Yiddish poet. He taught at the University of Rochester. And I know there's a new book that has just come out with a uh, forward by Richard Blanco, the great, the great Richard Blanco, the great poet. So talk a bit about your dad's work. Uh, again, he, uh, my father was born in 1911 in Brooklyn, um, but, uh, you know, of immigrant parents, and to digress slightly, because you mentioned Richard, he did write the forward for the most recent book, which is a, a, my father's first publication in Spanish, 32 poems of his in English and Spanish. So Richard struggled uh, or talked about how he was going to approach writing the forward and said, what do I have in common with this 1911 born Brooklyn guy speaking Yiddish? And he said, what well, I came to realize that I am a 1960s Miami Spanish speaking, you know, Cuban derived person that actually we are one. Our languages are the same. Our families are the same. And that immigrant experience is the same. And again, he says it more beautifully. I encourage you all to go find that quote because it, it really in two sentences captures something hugely important in America at the moment, frankly, about this deep connection we all have with each other even separated by a hundred years. And Richard, Richard's whole work is about that, is building those bridges completely. Yeah. Um, so my father born in 1911, again, born in Brooklyn, but, but didn't speak English growing up, spoke, you know, Yiddish and, and Russian. 
Uh, his father actually had a respiratory issue and uh, they got a loan from the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society and bought a farm in Connecticut. Uh, and so my father grew up on a farm, made, made them even more isolated and only spoke English because he went to the one room schoolhouse, which I have now visited and um, uh, only learned English there. And, uh, you know, ultimately went to Trinity College, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, proud to say he did well. And Trinity gave him a scholarship. He went to Yale, uh, graduate school in English. So this little Jewish kid kind of wound his way, um, but uh, hated it at Yale um, and uh, left after a year um, and uh, promoting a little bit. Uh, um, we can tell the longer story about it, but but he he wrote a, a long letter, which turned into a book called Letter from a Young Poet, uh, which describes the next seven years of his life uh, between leaving Yale and the big, and actually the postscript of the letter is December 11th, 1941, which is four days after Pearl Harbor. Um, and he was a, you know, he wasn't like a baby. He was a grown person, English literature person writing, if I may say beautifully about that time in his life, 72 page letter he wrote to his academic mentor uh, which got saved, and um, in the in the archives of his academic mentor at Trinity, who turned out to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian named Odell Shepard, um, and the university found it, and they decided to publish it. Um, but it says something important about about his life. When he went back to Yale, um, ultimately finished his degree, and uh, began at the University of Rochester in the late 1940s. He ultimately, again, was a Yiddish speaker with his parents and wrote in Yiddish to his parents, but he was, he wrote his poetry in English. And um, again, he passed away in 62. He was um, frankly too old to see him, but Louis Untermeyer came to see him in late 1961 to tell him he wasn't gonna win the Pulitzer Prize, but he was, my mother tells the story, it's caught on film. Um, and he couldn't see him, but so Louis Sundermeyer visited my mother and said, he's not going to win, but I wanted to tell him personally. Um, and he, and now we have all the records of the Pulitzer Prize Committee, you know, that her, they've been, the archives have been uncovered. So he's, he was on the final list three times. Wow. Um, but not a winner. And by the way, that, that makes a difference between recognition and not. But uh, since he passed away, we're approaching in January, the 60th anniversary of his passing. Um, my mother has spoken about him every single day since he passed away. Talk about his work. I mean, every, every artist should have a spouse like my mother <laughs> that, that, uh, that devoted. But in addition to the work you described, which is called 32 Poems, 32 Poemas, that Richard wrote the, the foreword of, um, uh, the letter from a young poet, Daniel Halpern, um, uh, wrote, wrote, wrote the foreword. Um, the book prior to that, uh, David Caston, really prominent Shakespeare scholar, and the book prior to that, all since my father passed away, Anthony Heck wrote the foreword, too. So embraced by these important figures and his, the recognition for his work has never, you know, continues, frankly, um, uh, undiminished, even though he doesn't have the recognition or celebrity that comes from actually having won one of those things that propel you in a, in, a, in a different way and being poets being a poet. And he died, he died at age 50. And um, I would say quickly, by the way, too, that uh, I'm gonna say like our residency program at the Betsy and maybe part of the inspiration, my father died 
in 62 and you know poets play a particular role in society they just do and um uh when he passed away uh the university wanted to do something and the then chairman of the university who was also the ceo of xerox joseph wilson funded a reading series in my father's name mm. called the plutzik poetry series began in 1962 it's the longest running collegiate reading series in the country Wow. And not and not unlike looking at our list of writers and residents, if you look at the list of writers who have read in that series over 60 years, you'll find everybody. Anybody, anybody who comes to mind. That, in that case, it's only six writers a year, but you know, six times, et cetera. It, you know, the James Baldwins. I mean, you go back to who was important in 1962. And by the way, my father was succeeded in that poetry slot, you know, at the University of Rochester by Anthony Hecht, uh, W.D. Snodgrass uh, taught there, uh, Galway Cannell was at the University of Rochester, that U of R ended up having, um, uh, you know, an important role in American poetry academic discussion. Um, the legacy lives on through, yeah. not only through the poets that, came after him, but also through what you're doing at the hotel as well, and your, and your support of poets. Um, you know, there are two things that you're involved in personally, or you've been involved in personally. One is, you know, the wonderful program here in Miami, the O, o Miami Poetry Series that the Betsy had so much to do with. Uh, and the other is uh, something I know you're on the board of, and you're, you know, we should talk a little bit of about, and that's Planet Word, right? Which is a new museum that's just opened in Washington, DC. First, let me begin by saying everyone should go visit Planet Word. Uh, Planet Word is, uh, I, I am, am have blessed to have been a founding board member of, of Planet Word, but it's really the work and vision and support and imagination and I'm gonna even say genius of Anne Friedman. Um, uh, and is Washington based. Um, um, I, I hesitate to say it because I don't wanna take anything away from her. She happens to be the spouse of Thomas L. Friedman of the New York Times, but this is Anne's work. By the way, Anne's the secret editor of Tom's columns for 40 years. Anne is a- I know reading, you happen to be good friends with both yeah. of them too. And Anne, Anne is a reading teacher by training. Uh, she comes from an important philanthropic family that's been involved in the arts for a long time. And she had a vision one day given her love of language and words and editing and reading, uh, the world needs a museum. There's a museum for math called the Mathnesium or something like that. And she saw that and said, you know, we need, really need one for, for the written word. Um, and, uh, and she willed it into existence. It's at, it's at 13th and K uh -huh. uh, and it's in an incredible building built in 1880 that was built as a public school it has a long history and uh, the, the uh, city was trying to think what to do with it. People want to build boutique hotel. It's, the fact that it turned into Planet Word is, you know, there's a higher authority involved somewhere that, you know, uh, made this happen in that way. Um, and uh, by location, it's, by the way, fronts a park, which is the city is now renovating. So it's a beautiful setting. Um, but the fact that it started as a school and uh, turned into this thing is, is powerfully, is really powerfully important. Uh, and by the way, 
multilingual, obviously using technology. How is it working with your son, Zach? And is he, is he the fu- in the future of the Betsy? You know, first let me say, it's, it's always interesting to work in the family. So I have a, you know, a 31-year-old son uh, who um, actually comes at this, you know, in a modern way, meaning he worked at Google and AOL before he came here. And, and so he lives in a digital world, um, but, but also, you know, cares deeply about all the things that we have been talking about, comes na- naturally to him. Um, um, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm gonna answer your question, but I gotta tell you really one other quick story. I probably should have said earlier uh, really fast, which is one of our other dear friends we admire greatly is uh, the great poet, Gerald Stern. Um, you know, Jerry now in his late nineties, we haven't seen him recently, but we saw a lot of him used to hang out at the Betsy a great deal. But Jerry came for a reading and must have been, I don't know, it must have been six years ago, something like that, coming for reading somebody else reading. And um, uh, so this older gentleman, because Jerry's in his late 90s now, uh, older gentleman, Jerry was walking through the lobby looking like he wasn't sure where he was going. And my son, uh, whose name is Zachary Hyamplutzik, named after my father, uh, approaches him and says, can I help you? And Jerry says, well, I know the owners. Um, and my son says, well, actually, my family introduces himself. Whereupon Jerry begins to recite to my son, my father's poetry from memory. Wow, and that I, is so amazing. I, and I just share the story with you. Yeah, deeply touching for me and obviously deeply touching for Zachary. But it's also like a commentary on what you've devoted your life to and what we're interested in, which is kind of the immortality of words and language that actually... That was somewhere in the brain of this 92 or three or four year old at the time. Uh, it came out, it meant so much to my son that moment. But that's just one little moment of a thousand, a thousand, mo- a thousand moments. Right? And so there are two questions that, that I'm left with. One, so I know that all the writers listening are going to immediately want to know how do they be, how are they considered? How does a writer get considered to be um, invited to the writer's room? Um, well, the, the uh, best thing to do goes to, to the, uh, our website. Uh, we have the Betsy website. We also have a, a website dedicated to the writer's room, the BetsyWritersRoom.com. Um, and you can see who's been here before and so forth. Um, you know, obviously in the early years, we were, you know, waving the flag to get attention for people. And now we have, you know, more than a thousand alums. So we get a lot of inquiry. Uh, again, still trying to be deeply committed to diversity and who we have. That's I really commend my sister for never losing sight of that uh, in a really militant, militant way. Um, but that's the best way to raise one's hand, um, you know, is to send her a note um, to see the information there. The other thing which I need you to talk about, because I'm just yeah. so charmed by them, are your uh, your resident dogs that you have yeah. at the Betsy. Well, thanks for they they thank you and I thank you for for asking. Uh, lying next to me is uh, our beautiful Rosa. So first, let me say this is you know historically the Betsy Ross Hotel. So we have uh, two golden retrievers, Betsy, and then a tip of the hat to our critically important Latin community, we have Rosa, and we have a rescue too, uh, who I don't want to forget, Daisy. They even have their own cards, right? They they do have their own cards, um, and many people, I mean, like a lot of people, come you know, arrive in the lobby and say. And with, before they check in, they say, where are the dogs? Um, or they say in a sweet way, I'm only staying here because of the dogs. 
Um, and it creates, as it does in any environment, you know, a warmth and a relaxation and a, and a home residential feeling environment that we're all striving for and credit to the dogs for that. Jonathan, I thank you. I thank Leslie. I thank Deborah. I thank Zach. I thank the Plutzik family for, you know, for your passion, for your devotion to all things artistic and literary in particular. And I thank you for being a good friend to all of us down here in South Florida and me in particular. Thank you for being on The Literary Life, Jonathan. Well, well, well thanks so much, Mitchell. And let me say, uh, uh, I, I won't pet ourselves for, for being smart, except to highlight that one of the very first calls we made when we arrived here in Miami Beach was to Mitchell Kaplan. So we're so grateful that we made that connection on day one. Thank and you. And I am so glad you did too.